2: from KQED From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We all know that there are huge problems with the democracies that we've grown up with. Inequality and division have reached particularly high levels in the United States, but across the world, autocratic leaders have been ascended. So what to do about it? Today, we talk with a group of scholars who've been trying to build new foundations for our political, social, and economic systems. They're attacking the problem from different disciplines, bringing every tool from the social sciences to bear. Can we create a society where everyone thrives, where cooperation and care are as much a part of our institutions as competition? That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today we're talking about the big ideas that underpin our society. What are the things we assume, the things that form the common sense that turns into policies? Our first two guests co-edited the current special issue of Daedalus, the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is dedicated to creating a new moral political economy. Our current political economic framework is fixated on GDP, individual achievement, and short-term profit, all the while heightening barriers to widespread prosperity, they write. Faced with mounting climate crises and systemic discrimination, we must reimagine ways to ensure ethical flourishing for all. I mean, these are the things that we discuss nearly every day in different variations on this show And this work is an attempt to synthesize some solutions to these seemingly disparate problems. Let's first welcome Margaret Levy. She's a professor of political science at Stanford and co-editor of the Winter 2023 edition of Daedalus. Welcome, Margaret. Nice
3: to talk with you again, Alexis.
2: Yeah, nice to hear your voice. We're also joined by Henry Farrell, professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins and the other co-editor of the journal.
1: Delighted to be with you. Um,
2: So, Margaret... This edition of Daedalus, part of a larger body of work with pretty much the biggest of scopes, making the world a better place, rethinking our ideas about what drives humans and how the world should work. Talk to me a little bit about it. Just, you know, kind of sketch out. This is a long-term research program. And what are you trying to do?
3: So what we've been trying to do is recognize a problem that many people have recognized. We're hardly the only ones to have realized that the world is in need of change and that this might be a moment at which the world is open to change. And so our process at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, which supported this, was really to crowdsource ideas about what that should look like, what the pieces of that better world might be. And equally important, how do we get from here to there? How do we think about the levers of change and the processes of change? But the important thing was to get a lot of different voices into it, representing different social science perspectives. This is mostly a group of academics, some policymakers, um, and different perspectives in terms of you can see our group is diverse in terms of country of origin, in terms of racial background in terms of history, mm-hmm. generally.
2: Yeah. So when we say moral political economy, I mean, I know what each of those words means, and I even know what multiple combinations <laughs> of those words mean, but this feels specific. So what what does that mean, moral political economy?
3: Well, you know what political economy is, and that really derives from Adam Smith and the whole history. Since the rise of capitalism, we've had a series of forms of political economic frameworks that have served capitalism and democracy and that have transformed every 20 to 30 years or so, usually led by some prominent economists, usually male and white. Um, What we've been trying to do is think about, and all of those political economic frameworks have had values embedded in them, but not always explicitly. And that's particularly true of the one that has dominated the last 30 or more years, it's called neoliberalism or the new classical economics. And so the moral really refers to bringing those values out again and making clear that what we're trying to do in our political economic framework is to serve a set of values that encourage human flourishing and the flourishing of the planet and all the species upon it, and not just individual well-being or economic growth writ
4: large. Mm -hmm.
2: Henry Farrell, I think a lot of us have sensed that there are deep problems, not just with our democracy, but with democracies across the world. And recent history has kind of borne that out in in fairly dramatic ways here here and elsewhere. What are the signs that you're looking at, the data that you're using to say, yes, this actually is uh, an embattled set of institutions here?
1: So I think that there are a lot of different ways in which you can think about the problems of democracy. And uh, very obviously, I think what we've seen in the last uh, number of years is that it isn't just the uh, democracies which are more new, that are in danger, but uh, more established democracies such as the United States. And if you want to look for signals of uh, democratic weakness, I think that the lack of agreement among people on the fundamental democratic institutions, in particular democratic elections, is something that you would pay a lot of attention to, to the ways in which people simply do not agree that election results are real, even when they do seem to be. And so I think in order to understand this, We need to look at some of the uh, things that we have done in this project at the Center for Advanced Studies uh, uh, at Stanford. We need to start to understand how it is that these political economies of technology and of media have been constructed in ways that lead people not to converge and not to uh, disagree in useful ways, but in fact, to have uh, to some degree different understandings of reality altogether, which really is something that cannot be tolerated over the longer term in a democracy, which is likely to lead to. bureaucratic collapse if we don't figure out ways to uh, reconcile and resolve it.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, uh, Henry, one of your contributions to this work has been to create this kind of concept of high-tech modernism, which you're sort of referencing here, This sense that as algorithmic decision-making has taken over for bureaucratic decision-making, um, a whole, that has a whole bunch of implications. Can you spin some of those out for us?
1: Sure. Well, what uh, Marion Furcad, who is my co-author and I did in this piece, was we thought about what effectively is creating this new technological reality around us. And uh, one of the things that we argued is that this is in many ways very much like 19th century bureaucracies. Uh, There's a wonderful book by James Scott, uh, which is called Seeing Like a State, which describes how these bureaucracies in effect reshape the world around them. Uh, If you're a bureaucrat in the 19th century, you don't have a very good understanding of the world around you, all that you can think of is in terms of these bureaucratic categories that have been given to you, and you try to reshape the world to make it more simple to you. And so I think we see in Silicon Valley, a lot of the same thing is happening. We can think about machine learning algorithms, the underlying basis of artificial intelligence, as being these machines of categorization, which are a little bit like the kinds of uh, machineries of bureaucracy back in the 19th century, and they are reshaping the world around us in some important ways. And in particular, and this is something that Marion really has uh, contributed to the project, they're reshaping our understanding of democracy itself so that we think of democracy in terms of the realities that are presented to us by social media, which are, in fact, um, they're not simple simple expressions of the public, as people like Elon Musk Mm -hmm. would sometimes like to say. Instead, they are uh, productions of algorithms, productions of the ways that people behave in response to those algorithms. And this can give rise to this very complicated, very weird understanding of the democratic public, which isn't necessarily linked to democratic action in the ways that we might like to see it. Mm.
2: So interesting. We may return to this. I I want to keep the the whole project in mind, though, Margaret, as well. You know, one of the hallmarks of this project is going to talk about kind of flourishing for all. Uh, particularly within, you know, capitalist democracies. And I was thinking about recently interviewing Boots Riley. Some people may know him, you know, a, a artist, a director, yeah. musician. Um, you know, And one of his big things was he was just like, I do not believe, you know, he said, you know, following some Marxist reasoning, that capitalism can really ever produce flourishing for all, that it actually requires a kind of uh, a underclass, it requires these forms of oppression. So, like, what's the, the response to that?
3: Well, I think there are two responses. One is... I tend to agree with him quite a bit on that, but the reality is that we're not about to get rid of capitalism. And it is a very functioning system for improving certain kinds of parts of the economic pie. And it has not, it's been managed badly. It's, it's at a moment when it needs to be redesigned. And I think there's some possibility of actually transforming capitalism to make it more democratic to make it serve a wider public and to make it serve the earth. So I think the reality here is that we're not gonna get rid of capitalism. There are too many invested and embedded interests in it, but we can transform it in very significant ways. And so from the beginning, that's how we framed this project, Um, that we all had criticisms of capitalism, but let's think about the ways we could actually reform it, transform it and take advantage Right now, we're in a world where there's a lot of popular mobilization, not always moving in directions that are progressive, but there's a lot of discontent. So how do we help to mobilize that discontent to actually fix some of the things that are very broken? Hmm.
2: You know, one of the terms that I love in this work is what you uh, call a community of fate. Um, Can you talk about why you what does that mean and why is it sort of significant in changing these broader political realities?
3: I love that term, too. Um, And I now talk about it as an expanded and inclusive community of fate. And it really is a term that tries to encompass the fact that what we need to focus on in building cooperation and in building coalitions is ways in which our futures are entwined with each other, to get beyond the short-term and think about the long-term. And as you know, Alexis, from our common interest in the longshore workers on the West Coast of the U.S., the idea actually comes from thinking about that union and how it created a set of governance arrangements that enabled people, its members, to act collectively in the interest of far off others who could never reciprocate, who might not even know that the longshore workers were acting in their interest. What the longshore workers showed us, what the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union showed us, was the proof of the possible. Hmm. And now we're taking that idea and thinking about governance arrangements around issues like what some of the kids have done around climate change, which is to create an intergenerational movement mm-hmm. and a movement that has brought in people who never thought that they, you know, they're looking at their grandchildren and thinking, God, we could do this. We can act with them. And our interest can't just be about the cost of our home, but really thinking about the future of our children and their children. So trying to build that kind of community of fate and to go beyond the entwined destinies that we all have with our families or with our ethnic group or our religious group, but really thinking about our entwined destinies as members of the shared human race and the species that Mm. inhabits this
2: earth. Mm. We're talking about reimagining our capitalist democracy into a moral, equitable, cooperative system with thinkers who contributed to the current edition of Daedalus academic journal That's devoted to creating a new moral political economy joined by Margaret Levy, professor of political science at Stanford, co-editor of the issue and Henry Farrell, professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us a movement or a person that you think is shifting this old order You can give us a call. Numbers 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a big project to reimagine our capitalist democracy into a moral, equitable, cooperative system. Been compressed into the current edition of the journal Daedalus, and it's created dedicated to creating a new moral political economy. Uh, we're joined by Margaret Levy, Professor of Political Science at Stanford, and Henry Farrell, Professor of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins. Going to bring out a couple other uh, contributors to this, but I want to hear from you all. Do you have a movement or a person who you think is really shifting some of these uh, deep things in the way that our uh, system works? Or what's a change that an institution or the government could make to further this idea of flourishing for all. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum. All right, let's add a couple other voices. Uh, Manuel Pastor is a professor of sociology and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Welcome.
4: Glad to be with you.
2: We also have Federica Carugatti, who is a history and political economy professor at King's College. Welcome, Federica.
6: Thank you, Alexis. Nice to be here.
2: Federica, um, I want you to tell us a little bit about your part of this project, which is this kind of fascinating attempt to build a database of governance archaeology, which, as I understand it, is kind of an attempt to document in the astonishing variety of ways that humans have attempted to organize and govern ourselves in different societies through time.
6: That is exactly what it is. Um, And I think that to connect this with the uh, conversation we had before, um, if we're thinking of not getting rid uh, entirely of the structures of democracy and capitalism that we have today, but to transform it meaningfully, um, I think that it all starts uh, with uh, rethinking democracy. And so uh, the project is really inspired by the need, uh, I think, to empower people uh, with governance tools that they need uh, for meaningful participation in civic and political life. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have spent uh, many, many years uh, sort Of believing that uh, showing up for an election every few years um, is a meaningful way to engage in politics. And I think that we are starting to see the uh, drawbacks of that um, way of doing democracy. Uh, And the database is meant to, um, again, uh, offer a plurality of tools uh, for governance Mm -hmm. that I think can help us enrich the conversation.
2: Um, I mean, I kind of just love this phrase doing democracy. I mean, what are the other ways? It's kind of sometimes hard to imagine. What are the other ways of doing democracy aside from showing up to an election and casting vote?
6: It's, it's organizing community life. Uh, it's uh, figuring out ways to decide together uh, what we need from our uh, local communities and all the way up uh, to the federal government. And there is very little, uh, I think, in our modern Western uh, democracies that invites us uh, to do that. Um, and so I, th- I think that this is a conversation about democracy, not necessarily in DC, but this is a conversation about democracy that starts in our schools, uh, in our universities, it starts in our families perhaps as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a conversation that ought to be enriched uh, with uh, more uh, sort of participatory tools, I think.
2: Mm. So I know that the scholarly point of this is not merely to find sort of interesting examples of things that have happened in the past. Like I understand that it has a, a deeper import. But as you've been researching, have you found some collective governance examples that you feel haven't gotten adequate attention? You know, like people can be like, oh, yeah, Athenian democracy or things like that. Right. Like people have a few examples in their heads of, of some of these governance structures. But what are some that maybe or, or even just one that you feel like has not gotten adequate attention?
6: The entire history of collective self-governance in places outside of the West, uh, which I think has received, for very good reasons in in some respects, uh, particularly when it comes to the empirical evidence, uh, much less attention than what we ought uh, to give it. And I think that the dig- digitalization of uh, historical archives has made possible a new, fresh look at evidence that was impossible to uh, sort of like a reach uh, even just you know ten or twenty years ago. Um, and there is a lot of interest, I think, in trying to rediscover and Reuse the evidence of practices of collective self-governance that come from places that are not ancient Athens and ancient Rome, of which you know we know a lot, but they come from anywhere from uh, you know uh, India and uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, uh, the indigenous experience in the U.S. of course, extremely prominent, and so on and so forth.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Manuel, um, you study collective movements, oftentimes. Um, how do you see like the role of these different ways of changing power structures? Like you've got, you know, elite persuasion, you've got all these other things and then you've got, you know, these kind of uh, movements. So what is like specific and important and special about uh, movements?
4: Um, well, first, let me say it's a thrill to be talking with someone who thinks about Booth Riley as a major <laughs> economic theoretician. Uh, I would add to that and, the small business and community investment world nipsey hustle and perhaps mm-hmm. we could have a conversation about that later as well um but i think that what this project is trying to do is to understand that in order to really make change you need to first rewire the way that people think when we think that our economy needs to be driven by selfishness when that markets are perfect uh, we wind up kind of moving into a particular way of doing policy, uh, and there's so much evidence that markets are not perfect. I mean, how can we have lived through the financial crash, the recent meltdown of the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, et cetera, and not understand that markets sometimes don't work. So we need to really rewire, that's what communities do, uh, community and social movements do, if rewire ourselves to understand the power of mutuality. The fact that when we act together, we can actually create more prosperity, for most of us and that the way to get there is through collective movements and that that is also really important because you can think about improving civic participation but civic participation could become NIMBYism which says that the civic participation is about protecting our neighborhood from putting in the kind of housing for workers that needs to be there for people to be able to live together so what movements do is help build bridges markets make us selfish. They teach us that selfishness is the way that we're supposed to uh, survive in the world. Movements make us mutual. They help us practice the habits of bridge building, of expanding our circles of belonging, of understanding that we're part of a broader world, a broader nation, as Margaret was saying, actually, also broader unity with the planet. And there are numerous movements that are doing this. I mean, One that I would really highlight is Caring Across Generations, which is a movement that's trying to link together the fact that we need elder care as we become a more aged society, that many of the people who provide that elder care are women, Black women, immigrant women who operate under conditions in which they are not cared for. So if we're talking about creating a caring society one that takes care of our elderly and our children how do we also take care of the people who do the care and how do we realize that that is fundamental that care work to having a prosperous society Mm. for all of us
2: Mm. oh yeah and we will we will talk about care work uh a a little more later in the show as well let's bring in uh, a call let's bring in spencer in oakland welcome
7: hi thank you um I wanted to ask the guests about um, something called green growth. Um, From my research, and obviously I'm not an expert, uh, there's been a number of papers which have come out which have shown that green growth really can't work, meaning that we cannot decouple economic growth from resource use. And this has very, very kind of, uh, big implications for uh, our environment and for um, climate change. And I wanted to hear what your guests' opinions were on that in regards to creating a better system of capitalism. That's
2: interesting. Um, Spencer, that's a really good question. I think maybe should we start with uh, Margaret and then you can, you know, farm it out if you think someone's better to answer Sure.
3: Um There have been a lot of discussions about green growth, and actually where the evidence is going is that it's quite possible. It may be expensive. There are going to be some some losers in the short run um, who are going to resist it. Uh, Some of them are not rich people. Some of them are poor people. And some of the very rich are resisting it because they own some of those resources. But we've done an incredible amount of investment uh, as a world in renewables of all kinds. And I've been, I just I was, I'm in, I'm in London right now, and, and I was attending a conference, part of which was actually focused on this issue mm-hmm. and was pretty compelling that the reality of the future is that it will be green. It's just mm-hmm. going to be hard work to get there. But Manuel, as an economist in part, um, you might uh, speak a little bit to that as well, because you've also been working on that in that area.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think what the caller is referring to is there's really sort of three schools here. One is degrowth, which Mm -hmm. is that we're really going to have to just shrink our economy generally. A second is donut economy, which is kind of what's the level of sustainability for any particular uh, economy or region or metropolitan area or society. And then this third really is green growth. And how that has emerged is the understanding that if we're going to, for example, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, yes, we could simply shrink GDP. But in a world in which many people are poor, many people feel deprived, that's a pretty high uh, bar to put up there uh, politically and morally in terms of people's livelihoods. So we need to massively electrify. We need to massively invest in uh, greener technologies. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why there's so much interest now in the mandates around electric vehicles, the mandates around electrification, which need to be coupled with so much else to be able Mm -hmm. to reduce our sprawl, our use of cars, um, et cetera. But of course, a lot of this actually got embodied in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the major act that was passed by Congress and pushed by the Biden administration, which is actually kind of an interesting rejection of neoliberal market ideology and an embrace of industrial policy and clearly an embrace of green growth because of the kind of resources it's trying to put in to being able to uh, move ourselves to a more sustainable economy. And finally, it really gets to the issue that Margaret was raising earlier. It might be in the long run morally superior to degrow and to get capital out of the picture. But we've got about 20 or 30 years before we cook the planet, and we need to make the kind of investments that are actually going to make us more sustainable. Mm -hmm.
2: We're talking about reimagining our capitalist democracy at this time of climate change division. Uh, we are joined by Manuel Pastor, professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California; Margaret Levi, professor of political science at Stanford; Federica Carugati, history and political economy professor at King's College; and Henry Farrell, professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins. Taking some of your calls, you know, what are your hopes for a transformed capitalism? Can it be transformed in a way that's compatible with? the biosphere as well as you know human flourishing as we've been talking about and do you have a movement or a person that you think might be shifting us away from the old order towards something better you can give us a call the number is 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 the email is forum at kqed.org and you can find us on twitter facebook and instagram where kqed forum um, One uh, listener writes in, and Manuelis is going to come back to you. One listener writes in to say, So many of our impressions come to us visually. When I think of what a thriving world looks like, I don't see dilapidated buildings, crumbling infrastructure, etc. I do see people involved in pursuing their happiness and having the opportunity to use their talents regardless of race, how they dress, how they identify, etc. A WPA-style project for all abilities would be nice to see. And one thing I'll build off of that, going back to this green growth discussion, as well as your, your work in movements, I mean, it seems like there's a core difficulty right now, and I think this is particularly acute here in the Bay Area when we think about housing or anything else, um, that it's very difficult to build things, uh, let alone an entire low-carbon replacement infrastructure for, uh, for the world. So in your study of movements, where do we find <laughs> movements that supported or even accomplished themselves major building?
4: Well, I'm struck by, and I hope Margaret will talk about it, the labor movement in the 1930s that really forced the New Deal into uh, being, which actually saved capitalism and pulled us out of a depression by creating the kind of structures that would make people feel more secure, uh, less vulnerable, uh, et cetera. And so I've been really impressed by what unions have done in the past and also what unions are trying to do now and what young people are trying to do now with the Green New Deal, Mm -hmm. talking about just transition and moving us to an economy which is both more sustainable and more equitable and more inclusive. Um, I'm struck by the folks who've been working on raising the minimum wage and the way in which that actually helps to move things forward. I'm struck by folks who are talking about moving uh, infrastructure forward. The problem, and I think you're pointing to it, Alexis, it is not enough. And one of the biggest things that we need to address in the state of California is the question of housing. Number one, how do we build more housing? Two, how do we understand that our single largest housing subsidy is the interest mortgage Mm -hmm. break for homeowners and we refuse to have rent control in place that would create instead an equivalent amount of residential stability for people who rent? And then how do we make sure that we break down the nimbyist reactions that have been getting in the way of putting in affordable housing, of putting in uh, rent stabilization measures, etc. But Margaret, do you want to comment on this as well?
3: Yeah, I actually want to come in. I think you're absolutely right. Of course, Manuel, that the labor union movement not just in the United States, but around the industrialized capitalist world was very responsible both directly in building housing. They often created housing, not just for workers, uh, their own workers, but also for the teachers and others who had to be in the community if the community was gonna thrive and survive. But I think the other piece of thinking about the contemporary housing crisis is to, and this was not so much addressed in our CASBIS, Mm -hmm. Center for Advanced Study and Behavioral Sciences volume, Um, but is really an important issue coming up right now, which is we have a crisis of housing at the same time that we have a huge amount of empty commercial building Mm -hmm. that has been, been built, that often meets green standards because it's been built fairly recently. It's been part of a big development project. And we need to rethink... Manuel was sort of foreshadowing this. We have to rethink the whole ownership structure here. Mm -hmm. So we have renters who, you know, need to be moved into that as housing. Now turn that commercial real estate into housing, and we have homeowners who uh, can't afford their mortgages and are put into all kinds of precarity uh, because of the current financial system. So I think we're at a crucial moment for rethinking policy about housing. And rethinking policy about building and bringing those together, and and with the commercial real estate crisis that I think is heading our way in a very mm-hmm. big way, mm-hmm. um, as you just look around the cities, um, this is this is again that opportunity to really rethink things. And what our project is largely trying to do is to stimulate that rethinking. And help the movements that are beginning to move in that direction be in the right place at the right time yeah. to come up with the solutions. Yeah.
2: If we're I talking. Ab- have- oh, uh, uh, let me very- let me hold off on the on the thought for just one second, just because we're going to slide into a break here. We're talking about reimagining our capitalist democracy into a more moral, equitable, and cooperative system with four thinkers who contributed to the current edition of the academic journal Daedalus, uh, There is uh, an issue out there uh, called the new moral political economy. Joined by Margaret Levy, Professor of Political Science at Stanford, Henry Farrell, Professor of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins, Manuel Pastor, Professor of Sociology and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California, and Federica Carugatti, uh, History and Political Economy Professor at King's College. Going to get some more of your calls after the break. We also are getting um, some great comments in. Michael writes in to say, Capitalism is a lot like fire. When contained in a secure brick fireplace, it can heat an entire house. But if it escapes the confines of that fireplace, it will burn the house down. The bricks of capitalism's fireplace are regulations and strong regulations to control the fire of capitalism are essential or else it will burn our society down. Another listener tweets, cooperation is how we got this far. Capitalism has broken down social bonds. Its no limits ideology is putting our environment at risk of collapse. It's inherently destructive. and There's no way to reform it. We'll be back with more on that point right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about reimagining our capitalist democracy into a more moral, equitable, cooperative system. We're joined by Federica Carogatti, history and political economy professor at King's College, Manuel Pastor, professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at USC, Henry Farrell, professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins, and Margaret Levy, professor of political science at Stanford. Let's uh, get to some more calls since we've got a, a bunch on the board here. Susan in Berkeley, welcome.
8: Oh, hi. Uh, Thanks so much for this very interesting discussion. I wonder if the panelists can address the intersection between education um, and reimagining governance and capitalism. In the American system, we place so much emphasis on individual achievement, obsession with unicorns, for example, whereas in a more collectivist approach, we're looking at trying to um, distribute educational benefits more broadly. So I'd love to hear if there are
2: some thoughts on that as well. Federico, why don't we direct this one to you for just a a bit of the historical take on where have we seen education and collective governance in the past? And are there some, some lessons for us there?
6: This is a, place in which the historical evidence begins to back uh, to be sort of like a insufficient the more we go mm-hmm. back in time. But something that we have learned uh, from places like Athens, and here I'm going to have to uh, go back to sort of like a, my origins as, a, as an ancient Greek historian, um, is that democracy doesn't survive without the kind of education that is perhaps uh, uh, necessary uh, to build Uh, effective uh, participatory citizens Mm -hmm. and I think that a lot of what we see today uh, in terms of efforts at Stanford and in other places including Johns Hopkins uh, is uh, the an attempt to rebuild uh, civics uh, curricula in America uh, something that was done before and something that is not um, as common uh, anymore Um, and the idea is to uh, sort of like begin to uh, help uh, students uh, to think about themselves as participatory citizens through a curriculum that gives them the analytical and critical tools uh, to do that. And uh, this is just to go back to the example of past societies. Uh, the Athenian democracy, which was a relatively large-scale participatory government uh, for many, many years, uh, would not have been able to function without a fundamental understanding of the citizens, of course, uh, adult males, uh, trying to change that, uh, as Uh, as participants in a a political system in which they were the primary decision makers. And I don't think that a lot of us have the tools, uh, intellectual and practical, um, uh, to do that. And in order to do that, you also have to spend, uh, to to invest, because people need to be compensated for their time, they need to be trained uh, in being participatory citizens, and all of this begins with universities, and it begins perhaps even before uh, in the K through 12 curriculum. Uh, But it all builds up builds up uh, to uh, strengthening the, the sort of like a self understanding of people as citizens. And I think that that's fundamental mm. uh, to democracy. And this is what the Athenian experiment uh, certainly taught us. Yeah.
2: Henry Farrell, you know, if we look right now in the kind of transnational way, I mean, where do we see places that are doing a really good job on civic education?
1: So it's, uh, it's not, a, there, there aren't any very good examples I could think of. I think that we are, uh, for a long time, we have just assumed that democracy is a self-sustaining system, and as Federica has said, it is not. We need education to try and, uh, try and provide citizens with an understanding of what works. I think one of the uh, fundamental problems of neoliberalism is that it really assumes that markets should, in the end of the day, be the fundamental system of choice, and democracy and other things are all very fine and good, but they have a secondary role. So I think really what we need to do is we need to get away from that and we need to start thinking about how it is that we can make citizenship the fundamental basis of our societies. And that involves, I think, as Federica says, uh, we can look to uh, Athens. We can also look to perhaps a number of other uh, historical societies, including societies which, as she has said, are not ones that we usually pay attention to. But But we can also start to think about what are the dispositions that we want citizens to have? How do we want citizens to think about each other? How do we want citizens to think about disagreement, for example? Because I think one of the fundamental lessons, and I think both Manuel and Margaret talked about this in different ways, of thinking about a new moral political economy is that we're not going to get into a magical utopia where people disagree with each other, where people always agree with each other, where people have a shared and collective interest in everything. We're always going to have fights, we're always going to have disagreements. We're always going to have winners and losers, and we need to figure out, as a crucial part of creating a new moral political economy, we need to figure out means that we can accommodate those disagreements and make them useful.
2: Mm. Manuel, I wanted to ask you about, you know, one of the most divisive topics, certainly nationally at least in the U.S., is around racial oppression. You know, teaching of, uh, of the history of racial oppression in the United States, and uh, a- as well as just the, you know, persistent Uh, racial uh, inequalities here in the U.S. And this was one of the topics that you actually took on for this special issue of Daedalus, which inspired this this program. Can you talk to us a little bit about how how you're seeing that right now?
4: Yes, well, one of the things that's in the uh,
2: Daedalus issue is
4: a great article by uh, Derek Hamilton and several colleagues on stratification economics. And it's a kind of economics that tries to take seriously the persistence of racial inequality over time and why there's actually a direct interest at a group level and some of that continuing to occur. This is incredibly important because the traditional uh, neoliberal economics says that markets will wipe away discrimination over time and the traditional Marxist or left wing economics says, well, class is the most important uh, characteristic, and so let's not pay attention to race. And so, what Hamilton and others are trying to say is that we really need to focus in on why it is that racial inequality persists over time, understand it on its own terms, and then also understand how it gets in the way of forming a broader sense of the commons, of our common interest, and how we can build a movement in which all of us can thrive. And the key thing here is for us to recognize that while we're often told by traditional economics that equity is antithetical to prosperity, that if we want to have economic growth, we have to have some level of inequality, that in fact, a lot of the research is showing us now that The kind of very high levels of inequality that we currently have actually impede prosperity for most of us. And that's not simply left-wing economists saying that, that's research coming from the International Monetary Fund, Mm. the Federal Reserve, not well known as proponents of left-wing ideology. (laughs) And so it's really necessary to both lift, I mean, this is really an important thing about this project, is it's a project that's trying to say, can you hold Two ideas in your head Mm -hmm. at the same time, that capitalism might not be a really great system, but it's what we've got. And how do we reform it? Mm -hmm. That racism persists on its own. And we need to form a sense of the commons to be able to get and form unity and build social movements
2: to make change. You know, Margaret, coming back to you on this, I mean, race just seems like the perfect way of making it difficult for people to see that they're all part of a community of fate, right? That this is an, an obvious phenotypic difference between people that can be used by bad actors to try and pry people apart.
3: No question about that. And it has been used. And part of why I like the piece by, uh, Green and Hamilton and, um, and their co-authors is that it really is trying to show that race need not do that. Um, That it really is a much deeper problem that we have to overcome. And I think the issue of equity is critical here. There's a whole lot of research that's now going on that's showing that people of color have consistently been held back. It's not just that they, it's not just the history of racism, that's doing that, the fact that what that Black people came to this country as slaves, it's the fact that our current public policies are continuing to keep people in positions of inequality. That's our educational system, that's our economic system, that's our job system, that's so many parts of our system. And so if we want to build a community of fate that crosses racial boundaries, I go back to Martin Luther King, who also had a notion of community of fate and his notion of entwined destinies, where you really have to think about that there are common things that are keeping people poor, that there are people who have an interest in keeping people divided, and that what we need is community organizations, cross racial organizations, organizations that find people's common interests, their common sources of oppression and fight them together. Labor unions used to do that. There's something else where there has been a concerted public effort, policy effort, not by the general public, but by many of our politicians to undermine a movement that could be cross-racial, that could be cutting across other kinds of ethnic divides. So we need to rebuild those movements and race need not be a barrier any more than rural urban divides which are an equally big divide mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. Need to be divides.
7: Yeah,
2: let's bring in uh, Pat in San Francisco. Welcome, Pat. Hi. So
7: I had a couple comments to make. So first, as a as a union member, um, you know, we constantly bargain for higher wages as the cost of living is growing exponentially by the by the minute, right? we constantly have to face companies that want to shortchange us constantly. So there's a just common precedence of giving equal wealth to everyone involved in these, you know, businesses is not profitable. They're not going to do it. And on the other side of it, I'm going to have to pay, you know, exponential at the store for goods that aren't of high demand. Everybody buys the same thing. Like, none of that makes sense. And, I mean, with your uh, panelists saying for green economics to happen, there's going to need to be losers, and that will include poor people. That doesn't then make it a caring economic society, does it, if, like, we still have losers? And, well, I mean, it's just going to have to be them. That's not an excuse. We can do better than that. (laughs) Even on Marketplace. Even on the KQED show marketplace, we won't admit that inflation is not because of consumer spending. It's because of corporations cutting product sizes and charging way more. Like, that's just a fact I don't understand why we can't even be honest about this conversation.
2: Yeah. Well, Pat, um, thank you. We uh, are going to get to your answer Um but this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Margaret, I could hear you uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> feeling misunderstood. So um, why, don't, why don't you go ahead and finish your thought there?
3: Look, any change comes with political and economic contestation. And so when I'm saying that there are losers, yes, people are going to lose, and we have to make sure they're compensated, that they don't lose in the long run. And we can't build a political movement unless that really creates fundamental change, unless we recognize that in the short run, people might have to give up things that they valued before or that are giving them sustenance now. In order to get something better in the even in the medium run or the long run mm. so it, we're not going to emerge into a green economy without some people making short term feeling short term losses and we as a society have a responsibility to ensure that those losses are very short term and are not very large and if we don't do that we're not going to move people along it's very much like what you're describing in terms of the labor movement um, the labor movement, it's a fight. The, corp- the corporations are not going to give without being pushed to do that. And its it, it can be a bigger pool, but it's not an infinite pool. That's mm-hmm. part of what planet Earth is teaching us, is that at some point, the pool is going to be somewhat restricted. And I want to make sure it's a more equitable division and not just that might makes right.
2: Mm mm-hmm. We have a really interesting kind of set of questions we're going to do together. Um, listener Nate writes in to say, we need more employee-owned businesses. Why do we advocate for democracy in physics? But throw that out the window as soon as we go to work where individuals or small groups make decisions that often benefit them at the expense of the employee and or the environment. The mythology of the visionary CEO entrepreneur is at odds with democracy when said CEO is venerated as a philosopher king. Can't imagine who Nate might be thinking about there. But uh, <laughs> um, let's bring in uh, Kathy in Berkeley on an adjacent subject. Welcome,
1: Kathy
8: hi um i um thank you all for being here first of all i worked at um i retired recently at a cooperative in Berkeley the cheeseboard collective
2: uh cheeseboard beloved cheeseboard
8: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there you go and um it's been very interesting to listen to this conversation about about cooperation and what it means to work in an alternative uh kind of democracy or uh, And um, I just wanted to mention that over the years, we have hosted many, many students from Haas Business School as part of their outreach to understanding different ways of um, business Mm -hmm. governance. And it always has felt very token like. Um, The students come in, they feel, you know, they're at Haas Business to make a lot of money, and we're like held up as this example of an alternative business form, but they don't really. It, take it on for more than that little bit of seeing us mm-hmm. and I just was wondering around education around cooperatives in mm. um, economic economy depart, economic departments business schools and um, why they're always um, considered socialists or communists when really we are in the business to make money we're in the business to give everyone um, a fair wage a living wage if we can berkeley is super expensive to live in and we all are part of decision making and why that is considered some sort of an odd an oddity and anyway so i was interested yeah. I, you have all these acts, no it's, Kathy, the it's and yeah. where does it come from and you know we have done you can see us we're in tons of studies that these students do for their thesis yeah. and i don't know where it gets anyone <laughs> anyway oh,
2: well i know thank you problem, um but. Thank you for all your work and community. Really do appreciate it. It really is beloved institution. Um, Manuel Pastor, do you want to take this one on as just sort of, you know, it does feel like co-ops and more mutual forms of business arrangements are, are not only possible, but exist. Um, and yet they don't seem to uh, maybe have the the share of of larger companies.
4: You know, there are many jokes about economists, but one of them is about an economist saying, well, that works you know really well in fact but how does it work in theory and i think that part <laughs> of the challenge is that these alternative forms of ownership community land trusts uh, worker cooperatives other kinds of alternative employee owned uh st- stock operations etc all of these actually do quite well, but they don't fit very well theoretically into a market oriented individual, uh, you know, single entrepreneur kind of model, and so they wind up not get getting lifted up. And I think that is a big fault in our economics education, uh, and it's a, one, one among many in our economics education. I think that what we need to do is to be promoting more alternative forms of ownership. But at the same time, and I think that this is what this project is about, is how do we become realistic about the fact that it's probably not a series of co-ops that are going to build an electric vehicle industry that we need to be able to move forward. It's not a series of co-ops that are going to wind up amassing the kind of capital we need to be able to transform entirely uh, what's Uh, how we provide energy to folks moving to renewables and away from fossil fuels. And so how do we couple, again, two ideas in our head at the same time, lifting up as much of a solidarity economy that is community ownership and a sort of solidarity economics that is trying to promote mutuality in our economy that exists.
2: So interesting. Thank you so much. We've been talking about reimagining our capitalist democracy into more equitable cooperative system with usc's manuel pastor johns hopkins henry farrell king's colleges federica cargatti and stanford's margaret levy they all contributed to the current issue of daedalus creating a new moral political economy you can go as deep as you want in the topics we've been talking about just by googling that new moral political economy thank you so much for joining the show you've been listening to forum i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for another hour ahead with mina kim